This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Todd, your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is constantly changing, and things might have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the news by listening to your local NPR member station and by visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Over the weekend, the U.S. and Britain launched a series of air and missile strikes against Iranian proxies. They struck more than 85 targets in Iraq and Syria and 36 Houthi targets in Yemen, reportedly killing 40 people. The strikes were, of course, in retaliation for a drone attack that killed three American service members and wounded 40 others at a base in Jordan last Sunday. U.S. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby spoke to Fox News on Sunday about those strikes. What you saw on Friday night was just the first round. There will be additional response actions taken by the administration uh, against the IRGC and these groups that they're backing. Later on, we'll talk about how the U.S.'s response to Iran, the war in Gaza, and other foreign issues are shaping the 2024 election. But first, after the break, we stop in South Carolina, where President Biden easily won the state's Democratic primary on Saturday. I'm Todd Zwillick in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Back with more in just a moment. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. Every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. By the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. Donate today at cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Measure your end-to-end online performance with powerful website and seller analytics. Get insights on top traffic sources, understand how your reach is growing, and more. Use code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Joining us now to talk about the Democratic primary in South Carolina and Joe Biden's performance there is Scott Huffman. He's a professor of political science at Winthrop University. He's also the director of the Center for Public Opinion and Policy Research at Winthrop. He joins us from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Also with us from Columbia is Mayan Schachter. She's a news reporter for South Carolina Public Radio. Thank you both for joining us. There's a lot of hand-wringing around Joe Biden among Democrats, that he's weak and rightfully so, maybe, you know, 38 percent approval rating, survey after survey where people say they wish somebody else would run. But then this weekend, South Carolina, 96 percent. Joe Biden crushed South Carolina. What happened? Well, I I think what it proves is Joe Biden is still very much popular with many Democrats in South Carolina, particularly 
Black voters who, I'm sure as you know, make up really the core of the Democratic Party voting base, about two-thirds of the Democratic Party voting base here. Um, But something else that state Democratic Party leaders really talked a lot about was the efforts that they put, the ground game that they really put to use over the last month or so. We saw a blitz of these campaign stops across the state by multiple members of the Biden administration, including Vice President Kamala Harris and obviously President Biden himself. And, you know, one of Biden's most vocal allies, our South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn, really hit the circuit trail, really pushing out every single policy issue that that the Biden administration has has prioritized. So uh, even though turnout was not necessarily what we saw in 2020, this was obviously a very, very different primary. Um, state Democratic Party leaders are still very celebratory because it, it proved this this message that they have been pushing in that Joe Biden knows South Carolina. South Carolina knows Joe Biden. Professor Huffman, your thoughts? Oh, Mayan's right. Uh, you know, the, the Democrats who are the base of the South Carolina Democratic Party are solidly behind Joe Biden. Um, and that is, as she pointed out, because of Representative Jim Clyburn. In 2020, Joe Biden limped into South Carolina. Uh, it was absolutely not a shoe, and he was on the verge of kind of maybe even being pushed out until Jim Clyburn's endorsement rocketed him to the front. As mine pointed out, the majority of the South Carolina Democratic presidential primary is African-American, over 60 percent. And the majority of that are black women. Black women are the crown jewel of the uh, Democratic presidential primary in South Carolina. Mm. Now, you know, this election showed that once, uh, you know, the base got behind Joe Biden, they're staying behind Joe Biden. The bigger question is, yes, he got uh, an overwhelming percent of those who turned out. The big question now is enthusiasm. Can he generate enthusiasm in the rest of the country? So, Mayan, you mentioned that turnout overall was down from 2020. It is a primary. The New York Times had a statistic that there was a 13 percent increase in black voter turnout from 2020 in South Carolina. So so countervailing trends there. Right. And that's huge. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is the state Democratic Party over the last month or so really had this incredibly aggressive ground game and and the local parties as well to really reach voters who maybe had not participated before. So despite the fact that turnout was so low, we actually for the first time really had two weeks of early voting, we could see the impact here in a primary while we've had early voting on the books for a couple of years now. This is the first presidential primary that we've been able to see it. Over 57,000 people voted early, and the state Democratic Party said of that amount, over 6,000 had not voted in the primary before. So that that is big for this party. That is something to celebrate for this party. So, yes, turnout was low. Obviously, it was a contested primary, not super competitive. But those early vote numbers, which, as we've seen, if you can win early voting, typically you go on to win the actual race itself. So that that emphasis by the state party was was really key, I think, in getting that getting Biden to to surpass 90 percent. Yeah. Early voting so important. But my and some people still prefer to vote in person, down at the school, down at the courthouse, or at the community center. You were around the polls on Saturday, right? What did you hear from voters? 
Right. Very, very light. We really, uh, you know, went to a few precincts. Some precincts were consolidated also, which uh, drove some confusion for a lot of voters. But the voters I saw had had sort of different sort of personal reasons for why they were voting. I talked to one woman who said, look, I know Biden's going to win the primary. I know South Carolina is a red state anyway, but I want to prove to the rest of the country that South Carolina Democrats, they care about this primary. You know, we're not all backing former President Donald Trump or former Governor Nikki Haley. I talked to uh, another gentleman who works with the local chapter of the NAACP who had a lot of concerns about this primary because while he voted early, he was talking to multiple people who said that they weren't going to vote because they knew that Biden was a given in the primary, so they'd rather just show up in the general or maybe they had just exhaustion over the whole thing. And even some voters, he said, or some potential voters had no idea we were even having a primary. Hmm. I talked to one other person who who also told me in stress, you know, we need to prove as South Carolina Democrats, particularly as African-American voters, that we we are active and we care about this process. We want to send a message to these other states who who may be a bit sour on on Biden's candidacy that, look, we we are behind him. We care about his candidacy. Therefore, you should join in as well. Scott, to Mayan's point, Uh, We're going to be talking later about foreign affairs, about some outrage on the left especially, but among Arab and Muslim voters about Joe Biden's support for Israel in the war on Gaza. And I say that simply to set up this issue in South Carolina, voters who are strongly behind Biden. How important is it for him to break the narrative that black voters are less enthusiastic about him this time around, or some percentage of them are migrating to Donald Trump? How important is it to to break that story open? Well, it is important to show strength. And again, you know, mine pointed out and you said turnout was low overall, but African-American turnout was solid. And Biden does need to show that he is reaching the base, especially uh, people of color, that are, you know, if you look at the Latino vote across uh, Texas and other places, it can be split oftentimes. A lot of the Latinos that in are, are there now are becoming evangelical, not necessarily the traditional Catholic, which puts them on a, a bit of a crash course with the Democratic Party. And Biden needs to solidify his support with them. Strong showing in South Carolina showed that for at least one important base, probably the most important base, He's got a strong level of support among them, but it's reaching out and getting enthusiasm among the others. He'll now have to face the Mm. kind of voters you just mentioned who are are going to be deeply concerned about what's going on in Israel right now. Other demographics and other voting blocks to to worry about. Um, Scott, we're heading into a break, but I I, look, I know you're in South Carolina. I got to ask about what you think about New Hampshire and South Carolina together, the two proof positives for Democrats so far. New Hampshire had a Dem primary, although it wasn't the official one, but they already had it at the beginning of January. Joe Biden wasn't even on the ballot. He still easily won as a write-in. Then South Carolina, 96%. What are these two results? You know, Northeast, white New Hampshire, and Southern, largely black South Carolina say about his position now? Those are both touchstones, uh, again, in the more liberal white uh, New, New Hampshire. 
and of course, African-Americans in South Carolina. He's beginning to show strength that he's got some uh, motivation among those voters. It's just going to have to be enthusiasm beyond the most partisan folks who are the ones who show up for the primaries. It's those Yes, I'm a Democrat. I'm not a super strong one. I might not show up. He's got to make sure they show up in November. We're going to stay in South Carolina for just a few moments after a quick break to find out what voters in this Democratic Party really care about, what the stakes are in this election for them. And then on to foreign affairs, on to the war in Gaza, on to Ukraine and other issues that are going to affect this election. We'll be right back in a moment. This message comes from Wired on Wired Politics Lab. You will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of Internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to it. We're talking about the Democrats who had their primary on Saturday. We're going to check in with the Republicans, too, because that primary is coming in about three weeks in South Carolina, and it could tell us a lot. Um, But as far as the Dems go, uh, Scott, this was South Carolina's first go as the Dems first in the nation primary. It's look, it's contentious. It's controversial among all of the people who really worry about first in the nation status and caucuses and primaries. But anyway, how did it go as a candidate proving ground this time around since it was South Carolina's first time? Well, as you mentioned, the, uh, uh, you know, the turnout among African-American voters, again, the absolute core of the Democratic Party down here in South Carolina was up a little bit. Um, Overall, as Mayan pointed out, there are a lot of people who didn't even know we were having a Democratic presidential primary. Hmm. And so, you know, that uh, that lack of enthusiasm really could have been a problem. But again, as mine said, they the Democrats really put together a push to bring people out to the polls. Um, I think if this had been a competitive primary between the push and the enthusiasm, we would have seen probably sky high Democratic turnout. Again, it's just because it wasn't really contested. Uh, overall turnout was lower, but the turnout that was there solidly behind Joe Biden. What did the push look like? What was the message? And what does it say about what an effective turnout message could look like going forward, Scott? Well, as I saw uh, text messages 
um, overwhelming number of of texts. Uh, there were calling banks. I have students who had been working calling banks. They had been walking neighborhoods. Uh, it was a blanketing of of kind of large proportions with multiple modalities of trying to contact voters. All right. Well, let's take a moment now to check in on the Republicans who will also, as I mentioned, have their South Carolina primary on February 24th. Nikki Haley, who's the former governor, of course, in South Carolina, she's still in the race challenging Donald Trump. Here she is over the weekend getting some free exposure to a mainstream audience on Saturday Night Live. My question is, why won't you debate Nikki Haley? Oh, my God, it's her, the woman who was in charge of security on January 6th. It's Nancy Pelosi. For the 100th time, that is not Nancy Pelosi. It is Nikki Haley. It was Nikki Haley, Scott Huffman, a little bit of a turn on SNL there with not Donald Trump, by the way, just the Trump impersonator who does a great job on SNL. Look, um, Trump is ahead by a lot in South Carolina, but you're there in the state that knows her best. What's your read on Nikki Haley's calculus? Why is she staying in when voters in her own state look like they're about to say we like Donald Trump a lot? Right. Well, you know, remember, there's a duality among South Carolina uh, Republican voters. They really like Nikki Haley. They, uh, you know, appreciate her. She has high favorability ratings, but they just want Donald Trump as president. So, you know, your question of strategically, why is she staying in? Well, I think the uh, conventional wisdom that may be wrong is that, hey, she should worry about what uh, as somebody in the Iowa caucus in 2028 is going to say, it's like, hey, she couldn't even win her own backyard. But on the flip side, she will be the only one who can say, I continued to go toe to toe with Donald Trump. So if Trump loses to Biden again, she will have positioned herself for 2028 to be the person who said, I stood up, I told you so. I showed momentum where everybody else got out. So there may be a little bit of long-term calculus going on there. I think she also partly wants to stay in because there are a lot of unknowns and intangibles in Donald Trump's electability. I mean, if he gets convicted of felonies before the convention, if he's convicted of felonies and it's clear that not the base, but a huge chunk of Republicans, independents or moderate Republicans are dropping out from under him. She may want to be the one standing there ready to pick up the bag. You know what? That's been a whole lot of her appeal is that she is the only one who can beat uh, Joe Biden, that Donald Trump is going to lose those independents. She has made a direct appeal to independents here in uh, South Carolina. There were even some text mail, or text uh, messages that went out appealing to Democrats to try and show up. Now, as we saw, the Democrats who care enough showed up for the Democratic presidential primary. But Nikki Haley is counting on the folks who are not 100 percent behind Trump to show up in incredibly large numbers. And she needs that just to get close. Right now, she's more than 25 points behind, whereas Trump only won by 11 in 2016. All right. That's Scott Hoffman, professor of political science at Winthrop University in South Carolina. He's also director of the Center for Public Opinion and Policy Research. At that school, we were also joined by Mayan Schechter, news reporter at South Carolina Public Radio, for their read on the Republicans, but also the Democrats, the Democratic 
primary in South Carolina on Saturday and a 96, I think, 0.3 percent showing for Joe Biden there. Thanks to you both. Well, the last time President Biden was in South Carolina, the welcome was not so warm. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. Last month, protesters interrupted Joe Biden's speech at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston to call, as you heard there, for ceasefire in Gaza. The rift between Biden and Muslim and Arab American voters has only deepened since then. During a visit to Michigan last week, Biden was met with more protests. He was also spurned by prominent Arab American leaders in that swing state. Palestinian lives should not be measured in polls. For us, this is a moment for our concerns to be heard, listened to, and for us to uh, draft a new course together in terms of uh, changing the direction of what's happening overseas. Those are conversations that need to be had with senior policy staff, with cabinet members, not with campaign staff. That was the mayor of Dearborn, Michigan, Abdullah Hamoud, speaking to PBS's Laura Barone-Lopez last week about why he declined to meet with Biden's team. Here to talk about the foreign issues shaping the 2024 election, the U.S.'s retaliatory strikes against Iran-aligned groups, and what they could all mean for November is Elise Labatt. She's a journalist covering international affairs and U.S. foreign policy. She's also the founder and editor-in-chief of Zivi News. That's a news company by and for Gen Z. Her foreign affairs column on Substack is called Cosmopolitics. Elise, great to talk to you again. Great to be with you, Todd. Well, uh, we just heard it there. Michigan is a critical swing state. Biden won it in 2020 by a little under three points. But Michigan is also home to 300,000 Arab Americans who right now, as we just heard from the mayor of Dearborn, are not liking Joe Biden. How much of a political danger for Joe Biden is the war in Gaza right now? Todd, I I think we can't even underestimate how important it is. Uh, The common wisdom is that voters do not go to the polls on foreign policy and the issues like the economy or immigration might be a bigger issue. Uh, But in some of these swing states, when they're just down to, you know, a few thousand votes, and if you remember, um, Donald Trump uh, beat Hillary by about 11,000 votes in 2016 in Michigan, after she ignored basically the state. And so what Arab Americans are saying in Michigan, for instance, is saying, don't don't count on our vote. You have abandoned us, not just on the Gaza war, but on other issues related to the Palestinians and Arab American concerns. And now not only are they just thinking about sitting out, but now there is a whole movement called the Abandon Biden campaign that they're taking nationally. And they've committed to going to swing states to ensure that Biden loses. Now, the common wisdom would be, well, isn't he better than Trump? And you heard the Dearborn mayor also in that interview said, well, I really don't think that there's there's any difference. And, and maybe the long-term cost of change is to send you know, a message to a candidate like President Biden that you, know, you can't ignore our concerns. Here you mentioned the mayor of Dearborn, so let's stick with him in a different interview from the PBS interview. Here he was on CNN speaking to Abby Phillip about the dynamic, at least, that you're talking about, Biden versus Trump, who would be better, and what the dynamics are for him and maybe his constituents in Dearborn. I think Trump is a threat to American democracy. So the question should stand, what will President Biden do 
to prevent the unraveling of our American democracy? Why is being aligned with Benjamin Netanyahu and the most right-wing government in Israel's history worth potentially sacrificing our American democracy? Well, Elise, you you heard it there. I mean, Biden's position on Gaza is deeply unpopular with Arab and Muslim Americans. But he but it also remains broadly popular with voters in general. And that's the mayor in a way saying Trump is far worse. You mentioned that he's also mentioned that there might be no difference. I see a lot of gray areas. I see a lot of haze here and I see a an important part of the base, especially in Michigan, um, really sort of at odds about what to do here. Well, and it's not just, you know, kind of Arab American voters. We've seen the party, Todd, move very much to, you know, the progressive left in terms of the the war on Gaza. And it's not just Arab Americans. It's people of color. It's young voters. These are voters that President Biden traditionally has counted on to, you know, bring him um, an election victory. And all of them are very much against the war in Gaza and President Biden's handling of it. We understand that, you know, President Biden is very, feels very strongly about Israel. He likes to say it's in his DNA. Uh, but you've seen, and we've, we've been on this show talking about it numerous times, about how intensely this issue has affected Americans on both sides. And young voters, Democrats, people of color are saying that this is a genocide in Gaza. I mean, these terms are used, I think, a little bit loosely and, and maybe not in the legal definition. But clearly they see a lot of thousands of Palestinians being killed and they see President Biden not doing anything about it. Margaret emails to say, I live in Wichita, Kansas, and I think that the U.S., instead of trying to deny that there is a regional war, should focus on trying to end the war by making its support for Israel conditional on them treating Palestinians with basic human rights. This is typical of the U.S., trying to treat the symptoms of geopol- as a geopolitical issue rather than uncomfortably dealing with the root causes of the issue. On Thursday, Joe Biden did impose new sanctions on four Israeli settlers accused of violent attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank. The White House announced these sanctions just hours before Biden held a campaign event, that event in Michigan that we checked in on earlier. What's the message here on these sanctions on Israelis? Well, you know, in the West Bank, this has been an issue for years where Israeli settlers cracked down on on, on West Bank Palestinians, um, trying to get them, scare them away. Since October 7th, that has really increased, and they're so much so that Palestinians are even leaving the neighborhoods. And so this has been something that the administration has been considering for some time, However, it was, as you mentioned, the timing was was very interesting that it was just a few year, a few, sorry, a few hours uh, before he was going to Michigan. And, and back to the the mayor of Dearborn, who is saying, you know, look, it's pretty obvious. And, and again, this has been something that the administration has been working on, but they do see this connection that the president and his campaign are saying, oh, yeah, Michigan, oh, yeah, Arab Americans. And they think that this can't be an issue, a political issue. This should not be an election issue. They want to be in the discussions. How do we end the war? How do we move forward? How do we have um, a U.S. foreign policy that takes 
our concerns into consideration. And what people are saying now, and and as this war is, you know, kind of spiraling and and expanding to um, other areas, they're saying that not only is this an issue about the Palestinians, this is a national security issue for the United States. Okay, we're going to go to a quick pause here. Coming up, what do U.S. airstrikes against Iranian proxies mean for the region and the presidential election and possible escalation? We'll be talking about proxies in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, and also the war in Ukraine. Back with more in just a moment. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Well, over the weekend, the U.S. and Britain, as we mentioned, launched a series of military strikes against Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria and in Yemen. These strikes were in retaliation for the deaths of three U.S. service members killed in Jordan last Sunday. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby spoke to Fox News about the strikes on Sunday. You want to do this in a deliberate way. You want to do it, carefully select your targets. You want to make sure that uh, that all the parameters are in place to have good good effects, including factoring in the weather. I mean, these attacks were using manned aircraft. You want to make sure your pilots can get in and get out safely. So there was a lot of planning that went into that. Uh, and uh, again, the Pentagon believes we had good effect, that we, uh, that we hit what we were aiming at. John Kirby there from the White House on Sunday talking to Fox News. Kirby also says that the strikes this weekend were just the first round of retaliation against Iran and its proxies for those attacks in Jordan that killed Americans. Um, Elise, what do we know about the 85 targets in Iraq and Syria and the 36 Houthi targets in Yemen that the U.S. struck? What was their value? Well, these were very key weapons depots, uh, facilities, that type of thing that will really degrade not only degrade, but I think the the word is defang these proxies that are going after the United States um, and U.S. forces, and also on the on the Houthi um, interrupting shipping lanes. Some of them were IRGC facilities. We don't believe that any uh, Iranians were were killed in these strikes. On the uh, eighty four strikes that eighty five strikes, the U.S. says that it, it hit most of them. Uh, most of the targets that it intended. On the Houthi, I think they're still doing um, a battle assessment. But I have to say, Tata, I just think the messaging is like a little, you know, kind of convoluted on what the U.S. is doing. Is this for retaliation of the killing of three Americans? Is this for shipping lanes? I think here the United States (laughs) should just be sending one clear message. If you mess with the United States, if you mess with shipping lanes— you're going to regret it. Hmm. And that's what deterrence is all about. I think um, you've seen like 160 attacks uh, since October 7th against U.S. forces. The U.S. hit back maybe a half a dozen um, of those times. Any of these attacks could have killed U.S. servicemen, okay? This attack wasn't really all that different than any else. And so I think the U.S. in terms of has been more of in a defensive posture, in a more reactive posture, it needs to move to a deterrence where you have a conversation between Iran and its proxies. Do we really want to be doing this? 
or are we going to regret it? Iran's president, Ibrahim Raisi, responded to the strikes. He said, as you said, Iran doesn't want a war, but then some boilerplate language um, will respond strongly to anybody who bullies them. The flip side, Elise, of having a clearer, stronger deterrent is the risk of escalation. And we hear about that risk all the time. There is a war in Israel and Gaza. There has been a civil war in Yemen, attacks on shipping in the Red Sea. And it's pretty clear that the United States here is trying to erect a deterrent without having all of this spark off into a much broader regional conflict where everybody jumps in. Talk about that risk a little bit. Well, I think this is part of the problem in the fact that the U.S. waited so long to respond. Okay, again, it's in this reactive posture. And a lot of military analysts say sometimes you need to escalate to de-escalate. You know, the U.S. needed to send this decisive strike to say, cut it out. Remember earlier in this uh, war, President Biden was saying, if you're thinking of hitting the U.S., don't. And that was the message to Iran, just don't. And so Iran and his proxies kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And eventually the U.S. just obviously with the, with the um, killing of three American servicemen had to respond. Um, these groups need to think twice about doing it. Um, that's why you haven't seen that much um, from Hezbollah in terms of hitting um, Israel. Yes, there have been some strikes. Yes, they're making noise. But they know that if Israel, if they hit too far, if they make too much noise, then Israel is going to go after them like they did in 2006. And that's going to be an ugly war. So I think everybody is just kind of pushing as far as they possibly can without this spiraling out of control. I know that there is a concern that this could escalate, but I really do think that the administration had no choice um, but to to launch these attacks and continue to send the message to Iran and its proxies um, that it's time to tamp this down. Uh, I mean, Joe Biden is the commander in chief, of course, has a responsibility to protect U.S. interests regardless of politics. But a, a broader war in the Middle East would clearly be politically chaotic. Donald Trump's position on all of this, is, as far as I can read it, is is essentially incoherent. It's a, it's a mixture of no more wars, but also anti-Iran and we killed their top general and also it would never have happened if I was president, sort of statements that don't really match up. How do you think about the risks here in the U.S. election if there were an escalation here? Well, I mean, President President Trump went after um, Soleimani. He didn't go after – he went after Soleimani when he was outside of Iran. So even President Trump at the time had those red lines against going after Iran. But I have to say, you know, I'm getting messages on my Cosmopolitics blog, uh, column on the blog from, you know, these are people outside of the United States, but they are saying, they do say, you know, they echo what President Bush said, is that maybe this wouldn't have been happening if President Trump was in power because he was more decisive. And the question, if this spirals a little bit more out of control, and there's so much disaffection with the way President Biden is handling it. You have to wonder if the if more of a national security mindset is in the mind of voters when they see you, maybe more U.S. servicemen are killed. This is spiraling out of control. Would President uh, Trump be a little bit 
would be a little bit tougher. I think probably he would have gone after the Houthis a little bit earlier. The U.S. took the uh, President Biden took the Houthis off the terrorism list when they were going after Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So, you know, this doesn't, this predates October 7th. I mean, obviously October 7th has seen this kind of explosion of all these groups that are using the war in Gaza as an excuse but you know president biden has been a little bit slow to go after these groups even before october 7th well the middle east of course isn't the only point of grave concern ukraine is running short on weapons and ammunition in its fight to repel russian invading forces sent by vladimir putin and let's get some of your comments from a foreign policy standpoint i'm concerned about how American elected officials are playing into Putin's hand by not supporting Ukraine. I'm also concerned about elected officials putting political gains over immigration solutions. So at least that caller is getting at something critical that's going on here at home right now. Joe Biden and, and lots of national security-minded Republicans want critical aid for Ukraine. Far-right Republicans in the House, they set a price for that. They said a crackdown and overhaul of U.S. border policy is the price. You want help for Ukraine? That's what you have to do. The Senate has finalized a deal just last night on that very issue. They're going to vote on it this week. But now those very same House Republicans who demanded this very deal say, eh, don't bother, not interested. What happened here? Well, I think they were trying to get the immigration through without actually capitulating on Ukraine. And, and I mean, I don't know that they are, that these, these are Trump Republicans who want to support Trump. Trump does not support Ukraine. And so I think a lot of those Republicans are leaning, you know, more towards Trump on this, which, you know, doesn't help um, Trump in the election. Of course, I don't think that, I think Israel is a much more important issue and that's what people, it's more visceral for Americans as opposed to Russia, but but national security minded voters may think twice about this. I mean, Russia is clearly a very big problem in terms of national security, not only in terms of Ukraine, but what happens if he, you know, gets the message that the U.S. will not um, do anything more against him if Trump is elected. He may go further into Europe. And so that's a real concern. And it's really curious that um, so many Republicans, so many Republicans, a large number of Republicans in the House are not supporting this Ukraine aid. Yeah, Elise, what does it tell you about where the GOP is on Ukraine now? I mean, six, seven, eight short years ago, this story would be totally the opposite. Republicans would be clamoring to push back on Russia. It tells you that they're solidly behind Trump, who's solidly behind Russia and doesn't want to support Ukraine. You can't ignore the whole issue of the impeachment and, you know, President Zelensky there. But clearly Trump does not want aid to Ukraine and Republicans are so solidly behind him that they're willing to go along with it. Yeah, the deal pairing aid for Ukraine with immigration is probably dead and it's dead because Donald Trump killed it after all the work of Senate Republicans to try to broker that deal. And we're going to find out more this week about how that goes down. In the meantime, Elise Labatt is a journalist covering international affairs and U.S. foreign policy. She's also the founder and editor-in-chief of Zivi News. That's a news company by and for Gen Z. And you can catch her foreign affairs column on Substack. It's called Cosmopolitics. Elise, thank you. 
It was a real pleasure. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at StearnsAndFoster.com. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.